Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Tim O'Neill. I'm co-head of the Consumer and Investment Management Division here at Goldman Sachs. And I'm very pleased uh, to have on stage with me today uh, Doug Brinkley, uh, who is currently a professor of history at Rice University in Texas. And he's here today to talk to us about his most recent book, American Moonshot, about that President Kennedy's sponsor of the trip to the moon. Um, thanks for being here, Doug. Thank you. Honored to be here. Yep. So what I want to do is, is start where you do in the book, which is uh, that day of July 20th, uh, 1969, when Apollo 11 uh, landed on the moon. Uh, you describe in the book of being an eight-year-old uh, watching this uh, live. And I think it's best to start at that moment because we're probably the only two people in this room <laughs> who were around at that time. So what was it like uh, on that day watching that moon landing? Um, well. You know, it is one of those moments you never forget watching it. You know, we only have, sometimes there are these moments in history that just live eternal, like Pearl Harbor or the Kennedy assassination or 9-11. Those are all tragedies. But the um, going to the moon, July 20th, 1969, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of that is a triumph of American can-doism. I mean, the moonshot cost the taxpayers $25 billion, about $180 billion uh, in today's money, and um, it was expensive. They used to say at NASA, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. But um, going to the moon just captured the, the world's imagination. So when I was young watching it in Perrysburg, Ohio, which is near Toledo, the big counter narrative beyond just going to the moon that I was dealing with is Neil Armstrong grew up down the road from where I did. He was from Wapakoneta, Ohio. So the idea was this hometown local boy is the first human being to break the uh, shackles of planet Earth. And it was an extraordinarily exhilarating moment. Uh, um, all of the world watching. Um, Neil Armstrong wrote that famous line himself, that's one, uh, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. He had test marketed it on his brother at a kitchen table, and that brother said, that's good. I, I tried to think up something better, and it was about as good as it could be. Uh, but very movingly, at the end, if you were watching all that or go back and watch it, you see and as Armstrong and Aldrin are leaving the moon, Armstrong says to Buzz Aldrin, did you leave the packet? And you, Aldrin leaves on the moon a packet that had medals commemorating our Apollo 1 astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee, who blew up on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral in 1967, and kind of special medals um, honoring the Soviet cosmonauts who died and they're trying to go to the moon. So at left on the moon, if we went there right now, that site would be intact. There's no wind on the moon. There'd be a packet there with medals honoring dead NASA astronauts and um, Soviet astronauts, cosmonauts. So the interesting thing about the book is that it's both a discussion of the science and the politics around the moonshot. So let's talk about the science first. And also, actually, the father of rocket science globally was really a, a Nazi, 
you know, Werner von Braun. And you talk, so talk a little bit about von Braun and the V2 rocket program uh, during World War II. You know, it's really, when you talk about going to the moon, guys, it's a story about missiles, uh, about intercontinental ballistic missiles in the end. And, you know, I pick up in my book with John F. Kennedy being born in 1917 in Brookline, Massachusetts. And if you're born in 1917, um, the jet age, uh, aviation was a hot rage. I mean, the Wright brothers didn't go up till 1903. And then you had military aviation at a limited way in World War I. But by 1927, when Jack Kennedy's 10 years old, uh, Charles Lindbergh crosses the Atlantic and he's the giant hero, just like Neil Armstrong was for my generation. And at that same time, in a cabbage field in, near Auburn, Massachusetts, a Clark University professor named Robert Goddard was putting the first rocket experiments on liquid fuel propellant rockets. Up until that point, people were doing it with a gunpowder effect, like a cannon shooting rocket. And now with liquid fuel, it was a whole new type of, of rocketry. He essentially was harassed for noisemaking and eventually he got a fund from the Guggenheim Fund and some people raised money for him and he moved to Roswell, New Mexico um, where he started, you know, so those cowboys and ranch hands were not delusional. They saw weird things in the sky out there. It was uh, his rockets. Um, but beyond it, Goddard, that was our only top tier rocket engineer um, in the U.S in the 1920s and 30s, but there were a lot of great ones in Germany. Uh, first in the Weimar Republic, and then when Hitler got control of Germany, and the number one um, brilliant rocketeer was Dr. Werner von Braun, and during World War II, von Braun has a top secret base on the Baltic, and he is building vengeance weapons for Adolf Hitler, V1s, V2s, and V3s, and, the, and he's the first person to put a projectile into outer space. It's, you gotta go up 62 miles where you lose the gravity's grip and actually hit the space zone. And von Braun makes that accomplishment as an SS officer with the Nazis in World War II. He then takes his V-2 rockets and they had a 210 mile arc so you could put it in Den Haag or Rotterdam goes across the English Channel, and they were, Hitler was trying to obliterate, obliterate um, London. Uh, luckily, this was towards the end of the war. Hitler commits suicide. Von Braun knows he may be tried for war crimes because Jewish slave labor built von Braun's missiles from the Dora camp, a subcamp of Buchenwald. And uh, von Braun decides his best bet in life is to surrender to the US Army and he hid all of his technology in a cave, blew up the entrance, so it was hidden where he had blueprints and war materials, et cetera. And we make a deal with the captured Werner von Braun that he'll come to America and work for the US Army under Operation Paperclip. Von Braun goes to El Paso, Texas, and starts testing his rockets in New Mexico, the White Sands Proving Ground, by 1950. He moves to Huntsville, Alabama. We call it today Rocket City, USA, where Von Braun and 130-plus Nazi scientists and rocketeers started perfecting Jupiter missiles um, as a for defense. 
in war, but also eventually the Saturn rockets. The Saturn V, you're gonna watch this summer, the giant monstrosity that takes us to the moon was built by Werner von Braun. He built the moon rocket. So let's put the politics in focus for a moment. So it's, it's 1950s now, so we're at the dawn or the start of the Cold War. We have intercontinental ballistic missiles. The Russians have ICBMs as well. Uh, but space isn't weaponized yet, and so, but then the Russians launch Sputnik. Sputnik is the game changer. It goes up in October 1957. Dwight Eisenhower's president. And now the Soviets beat us in putting the first satellite in space. We all now are living in a satellite society, whether it's weather reconnaissance or cheap, you know, global positioning or any kind of reconnaissance. You know, we, we telecommunications like we're doing right now. Um, so the satellites are a revolution in themselves, and we were beat by Russia. That wasn't, the, the problem with October 57 for Eisenhower is the United States had a series of losses. From 1945 to 1949, it's the only time in world history where one country has a nuclear monopoly, United States. But suddenly the Soviets get atomic weapons. Soviets get thermo, you know, or the hydrogen bomb. Soviets put the first ICBM up, the R7. And now they're putting the first satellite up so we're in this sort of feeling that we're falling behind the Soviets. And as a response to Sputnik, Eisenhower's forced to do something. And they create in 1958 NASA um, to do peaceful space exploration, to be run by civilians, and to pool the talent from universities and colleges, think tanks, uh, and Fortune 500 companies, particularly aerospace ones. And what at the same time NASA's created in 58, Texas Instruments, down by Jack Kirby in Dallas, starts coming up with the micro transistor chip, um, new type of computers, and computer programming courses start all over, and NASA's the first one to apply the new computer and radar technology that's been developed to massive projects. They did the R&D work, NASA, for the tech revolution of the Silicon Valley. Well, the first thing that had to happen is Kennedy had to get elected in 1960, and he used the space gap uh, very effectively against Nixon to win that very close election, which then lays the foundation for what he does for the next three years in this program. But that issue of the space gap was real back then in 19, socially and politically. Yeah, politics, right, comes into everything. Eisenhower's Republican president, Sputnik happens on his watch. John F. Kennedy, Senator from Massachusetts, Lyndon Johnson, Senator from Texas, Stuart Symington, Senator from Missouri, and Henry Scoop Jackson, Senator of Washington State, all want to be president or thinking about it in 1960 as the Democratic nominee, and they just start hammering on Eisenhower for being asleep at the wheel. Kennedy terms the phrase, we have a missile gap with the Soviets. And once JFK procures the Democratic nomination in 1960, at the Los Angeles Convention, we have those famous TV debates, Vice President Richard Nixon versus John F. Kennedy. You'll often hear people call those the first televised presidential debates. They are the first debates of presidents in US history, not just televised. We, you know, Lincoln Douglas was about Illinois. This is the <laughs> only time we had a presidential debate. And Jack Kennedy, because of television, 
beats Nixon on these debates. And two of the best punches Kennedy throws are about space. One is when he says to Nixon, you told Mr. Khrushchev that America is number one in kitchen appliances and we have color TV. I'll take my TV in black and white, thank you. I wanna be number one in rocket thrust. And at another moment, Kennedy will say to Nixon, if you're elected, I see a Soviet flag planted on the moon. I wanna see an American flag planted on the moon. So Kennedy's using this to political advantage and he just squeaks by a hair and wins in 1960. So he sort of inherited NASA, inherits the computer revolution, inherits the Cold War square off with Russia, and is being told by a lot of people that the new coin, the coin of the realm of a superpower is gonna be who's leading in technology. As a senator, Kennedy had pushed for STEM a lot, and this is a feeling that, that the new a world order was going to be the engineers, mathematicians, computer specialists, etc. So one thing you do very well in the book, among other things, Doug, is that first year of the Kennedy administration, 1961, was a rough year. Uh, after he has that famous inaugural address, asked not, and then first thing that happens to him is Yuri Gagarin. Yeah, I mean. And Yuri Gagarin's the Soviet cosmonaut, and when he shocks the Soviets, win beat us again, putting the first human being into space in April of '61 on Jack Kennedy's watch. He can't be blame somebody. It's and so he's furious. And what do we do? How do we make a counter statement to Yuri Gagarin? We had had Mercury Seven astronauts ready to roll. They had a, you know, uh, became kind of celebrities, but we had yet to try to put a human being into space. But Kennedy felt we needed to answer the Soviets, and so we greenlit weeks later on May 5th, 1961, Alan Shepard from New Hampshire, ancestors around the Mayflower, and we put Shepard up for 15 minutes, first American in space. He comes down and he's feted as a new newfangled U.S. hero. Kennedy loves all the TV coverage and radio coverage he's getting, and he's starting to invest more and more in NASA. And by that same month that we put Shepard up, um, on May 25th, 1961, is when Kennedy calls a joint session of Congress and in the afternoon and gives this appeal that we are gonna put a man to the moon by the end of the decade and bring him back alive. Well, the other thing that was happening politically, as you illustrate in 61, was the back and forth on geopolitics. So first Kennedy has a misstep in Bay of Pigs, then he has that failed uh, summit with Khrushchev, and then you have the Berlin Wall. So that was, there was a lot of romance around the space uh, age at that point, but the politics are really driving a lot of it as well, as you bring it Politics up. is driving, and Khrushchev is, is you know, the, the Soviets had a Star City space program they had captured a lot of German assets also to help with their missiles. Um, and where Kennedy starts thinking, look, it's a friendly competition. All of you have a view of John F. Kennedy, of um, glamorous, um, you know, right for every occasion, grace under pressure, um, womanizer. I mean, you have, you have you know, views of him. I will tell you from studying him long and hard, the big thing to keep in mind is he liked winning with underline the word winning, his father, Joseph Kennedy, would basically say, if you came in second in a yachting race, who got first? What, what good is a silver trophy? 
who got the gold trophy kind of attitude. So Kennedy in politics never lost. He ran for Congress in 1946 and won. He won again in, in 48 and in 50, three times in a row. 52, he runs, runs for Senate and wins. 58, he runs Senate and wins. 60, President wins. He never lost an election. And there, I, without, I would say I have 50 stories I could tell you of this nature. Um, Kennedy's playing chess with one of his aides as president, and he's about to be checkmated. And Kennedy, like, bumps up and it knocks all of the chess pieces and says, well, I guess we will never know who won. <laughs> you know, he was wired that way. So his thing with Russia is I don't want to go to war with the Soviet Union, but I wouldn't mind a friendly competition. If the moon's the target and it's in, if we're on about the same playing field, we in the United States can prove that democratic capitalism is superior to um, communist totalitarianism, and so it's like a game royale, the game on, and um, Kennedy starts mobilizing the country for the feat. The big success during his presidency that he actually uh, saw was uh, John Glenn, where we finally put someone around the earth three times. John Glenn is a um, Marine from Ohio, um, unbelievable pilot. Most of, all of our astronauts were extraordinary um, military aviators. Uh, many saw uh, combat experience in the Korean War, like Neil Armstrong, like John Glenn, like Wally Shira. Uh, but Glenn was unbelievably handsome, articulate. Uh, the media loved him, the camera loved him, and he ended up going around Earth five times in early 1962. Once he splashes down and is safe, he becomes a bigger hero than Alan Shepard. Yeah, it's always an interesting irony to me of the original Mercury 7 where Alan Shepard having, they all fought to be number one, and he won, and he was the first man in space, but the, the person that we really remember and celebrate the most is Glenn for the first orbital flight around. You know why? Because Shepard's wasn't broadcast in the way live on TV because we really didn't think it, it would, we weren't yeah. very convinced it would work. <laughs> but by the time we got to early 62, it was, right. it was television. Grand Central Station would have TV set yeah. up to watch it if you're commuting. And uh, they really hyped it up for Glenn because we had already done some successful ones. And, and so um, the, by the time of, of John Glenn, we had the advantage in our democratic society of broadcasting on TV our launches, where the Soviets still did theirs in secret. And so the world community post-John Glenn was for America to win the space race with Russia. Pre-Glenn, everybody, the, the buzz on the global street was the Soviets are beating America. After Glenn, it looked like we had a, an upper hand. And particularly after the Cuban Missile Crisis, when the Soviet Union backs down, uh, in the Kennedy effect, let's just say mid-1960s, um, NASA was getting 4.4% of our annual budget, federal budget, 4.4. Today, it's a third of 1%. Mm -hmm. So if you're gonna really go to Mars or go back to the moon, uh, the money's gotta come from somewhere. And what Kennedy and James Webb, the head of NASA, did quite effectively was get people excited about going to the moon 
And Kennedy was very blunt about it to audiences. He'd say, it's expensive space. It's gonna cost you and you and you 50 cents a week. But I need you, I need you to put it in. This is us doing it. And the people bought into that. After uh, the president is assassinated in 63, Johnson, uh, Johnson's commitment to the program obviously was personal as you described. But then he has the Great Society to pay for, he has the Vietnam War to pay for, and this is an expensive program as you just described. You think he had any doubts about continuing with the program? Well, I do think he may have had some doubts, but he, remember his home state's a big beneficiary of NASA. You, uh, t you know, we just gotta put that out there. But once Kennedy was, when Kennedy was shot in Dallas, uh, he was on his way to the trademark to give a speech bragging about America, the new frontier, Kennedy administration space policy. That was the speech he was about to give about how many satellites we've put up, how we're now winning that the whole few, the new ocean is, is, um, the, is you know, the stars above and that the satellites are the new big thing. And, uh, and he never got to give that speech. But Jackie Kennedy, the widow, came her first meeting with Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson in the White House. And she said, I want to keep Jack's dream alive of the moon. And um, LBJ said, we will. I pledge we're going to do it. And he immediately names Cape Canaveral the Kennedy Space Center. I don't know if Kennedy had lived on whether people would keep funding it, but now there was sort of let's fulfill Kennedy's dream. At the end of the line uh, in 1969, when Nixon was president, we're about to go to the moon, um, Bill Moyers of PBS and speechwriting fame and Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a New York senator of, of later manifestations, but they were writing letters that we need to name the rocket the John F. Kennedy. And Nixon's White House um, uh, Council uh, Chief of Staff, H.R. Haldeman, wrote to Nixon, you know, no, uh, this is a NBC News plot to Kennedy eyes the moon shot. And, and then also it was, um, you'll never placate the liberals. You name the rocket the John F. Kennedy, they're gonna tell you, Mr. Nixon, you know, president, you need, they'll try to next say, we've gotta rename the moon Kennedy. So Richard Nixon doesn't utter the name John F. Kennedy in the summer of 69, but right when we recover Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins from the, um, the, the South Pacific, and they're safe, um, at NASA headquarters on the big screen behind them, they put Kennedy's moon pledge of May 25th, 1961 on their board. And then in letters underneath it, it says, task accomplished July 1969. In, in NASA culture, this was a mission that we were, it was like a, a war mission in the sense, but no war, that we had to accomplish this goal and now that we, we achieved it. Problem with task accomplished is some of the later, we've had 12 moonwalkers, um, but it, it, they started losing some of the public excitement once we did the feat. And um, Nixon ended up canceling the last Apollo missions. And yes, we've done a lot of amazing things with the space shuttle and International Space Station and Mars rovers but it was never yet been able to kind of grab the entire nation by the scruff of the neck and get them excited about something as the moonshot did. So let me ask you a counterfactual. Suppose Nixon had won in 60. Would we have the American moonshot? 
I don't know, um, because you'll never know on those kind of things, but um, I, doubt sure, I, I personally don't think that Nixon would have gone to the extreme Kennedy did. It was kind of reckless to go to the moon um, and put all of your political capital on such a strange number. When Nixon gave the speech to joint session, every single person in NASA was like, are you kidding me? We have no technology to go to the moon. When Kennedy went to my university and gave this amazing speech at Rice University on September 12, 1962, when he said, you know, we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. An amazing talk about exploration, public discovery, science. When he left the stage, it's a whole group of NASA people there, and Kennedy said, all right, you guys figure out the details. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? This is, uh, he was winging it. And in fact, his own um, national security advisor, McGeorge Bundy, had the temerity at one point to say, Mr. President, this is, uh, you're putting the entire prestige of America on a kind of strange wheel number, and people are saying that this is a grandstanding um, ploy. And Kennedy shuts back, Mac, you know, you don't run for president in your 40s when, if you don't have a certain kind of moxie. Um, and Kennedy had a, this appealed to his kind of nature of winning and there's a little bit of a reckless streak in it. And once he put that number on there, there were many times we thought about joint going to the moon with Russia. And it's a story unto itself and you have to read my book to get into that. But one interesting thing that illuminates a lot is Nikita Khrushchev's son, Sergei Khrushchev, is on record saying, at the, he asked his dad, you know, Father, can we ever, will U.S. and Russia go to the moon together? And Khrushchev said, no, we'll never do. Why won't we do it? He's, and Khrushchev said, we know, then the Americans will know what we don't have. Yeah. Uh, that, they, that they were boasting about their technology in Russia, but if we joint did it with them, we would, in the end, our engineers would be like, that's all you've got? <laughs> you know, that's your computer system? You got to be kidding me. So there was a lot of bluffing coming out of the Kremlin on, in over-exaggeration of what their uh, capabilities were. I've noticed there's this hungering for a new moonshot. You probably get it and you hear it from companies. This is our company's moonshot. Uh, and, and so I looked into the origins of the term moonshot and it actually it takes on its modern manifestation with Wally Moon, a baseball player for the Los Angeles Dodgers, right. who in the late 1950s would hit these towering home runs, and Vince Scully, the radio broadcaster, would go, there it goes, it's, it's way back, it's over the, it's a moonshot. Yeah. And that term moonshot started sticking in popular culture. NASA adopts it calling um, the Manned Space Center the Moonshot Control Center. But today, the term moonshot means different things to different people. Buzz Aldrin is still alive. Neil Armstrong died. I, I got to do the official oral history of Neil Armstrong for NASA. Um, but Arm, uh, Buzz thinks the new moonshot is going to Mars. And Joe Biden's running for president, and he uses the term moonshot to be a war on cancer, working with MD Anderson and others. The idea that's healthy is there, I know we have a lot of broken politics right now, but many Americans still believe that if we pull together, you know, we can do something great and not, not a war. 
uh, something unusual and great, something that proves American exceptionalism. And the question now is what is that and how do we organize our politics that we all do it? Meaning Fortune 500 companies, universities, um, right, uh, Democrats, Republicans, independents, all the service branches, how do you pull together and do something magnificent here in the 21st century? Well, Doug, we've, we've come to the blinking red light and to uh, coin a phrase, this has been one small step for you, one giant leap for <laughs> Goldman Sachs, all right? I thank so, you guys thank for you. coming, really. This podcast was recorded on May 22nd, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.